It was the last day of the exhibit, and the hall of the Shanghai Workers' Cultural Palace was crowded. Groups of women and an occasional man hurried to view the pictures and captions depicting the achievements of Shanghai women, 1976 to 1986, even as workmen moved in to dismantle the display. The exhibit was an impressive testimony to the dedication and competence of women in many fields. Science, agriculture, industry, education, athletics, and the arts. Without ever making explicit comparisons to China's pre-revolutionary past, the display made it clear just how much women's lives had changed in the twentieth century. No longer were women's roles limited, as they had been during the period of imperial rule, to domestic work, childbearing, household handicrafts. Or prostitution. The options had widened considerably even since the Republican period, nineteen eleven forty nine, when many women moved out of the home into industrial production, professions such as teaching, social work, and medicine, student activism, and politics. With the coming to power of the Communist Party in nineteen forty nine, women were brought into the workforce in unprecedented numbers. They were also expected to participate fully in the political and social transformation of society. The results, we thought, as we moved through the hall, were all around us, in the women of achievement portrayed on the walls, in the confident manner and lively conversations of the women spectators, and in the fact of the exhibit itself, a government-sponsored effort to promote public awareness of how much women had contributed to China's development. Yet two aspects of the exhibit troubled us. First, an occasional display of statistical information indicated that the status of women was far from equal to that of men. Less than a quarter of the city's Communist Party members were women, a significant handicap in a nation where the party makes policy and controls political life. Even more disturbing, in a society that has begun to emphasize education as the key to development. Women were barely represented in the ranks of those studying for advanced degrees in Shanghai. Fifty of four hundred ten PhD students, one hundred fifty-six of seven thousand seven hundred fifty-three master's degree students. Second, the exhibit conveyed a mixed message about the sexual division of labor. It showed women who were distinguished scientists, but at the same time suggested that women were by nature and training. Uniquely suited to tasks such as the production of fine embroidered pieces that tended to pay less than jobs performed by men. The exhibit focused on women's individual achievements outside the home, but it left unexamined the double burden of women who worked at both paid labor and the unpaid labor of housework and child rearing. The public discourse on women's status in China is considerably more complicated. Than this exhibition suggested, since the late 1970s, the press has carried lively discussions, and sometimes acrimonious debates, about everything from female adornment to the role of women in the workforce. These discussions are not confined to the pages of newspapers and magazines; they permeate private conversation and visibly affect public behavior, especially in China's cities. Not since the May Fourth Movement. Of 
when iconoclastic students challenged Confucian norms for women, has gender been so visible as a subject of controversy and a category of analysis? This book is about the rapidly changing role of Chinese women in the 1980s. It is also about the excitement, confusion, and concern that Chinese people express as they contemplate the future of their society and women's place in it. The book begins with the socialization of young women, then moves on to explore adornment and sexuality, love and courtship, marriage, family relations, divorce, work, violence against women, and gender inequality. Discussions of these issues in China resemble, and sometimes echo, debates about women that have taken place in our own society, but they have been decisively shaped by the history of China in the 20th century, and particularly by the role of women in the Chinese Revolution. Women and the Chinese Revolution. Throughout the early, early 20th century, whenever Chinese intellectuals struggled to develop a vision of a united, strong, and free China, they criticized the oppression of women as a major obstacle to the realization of that vision. During the May 4th movement of 1919, Intellectuals attacked Confucian thought and social organization as the major cause of China's inability to defend itself against Western imperialism. In the course of this movement, they invoked the unequal status of women in the Confucian family as a symbol of everything in Chinese culture that kept the nation weak. But for patriotic young students, the subordinate status of women was more than a metaphor. Their personal lives were a testimony to the struggle against Confucianism. They refused to enter marriages arranged by their parents, publicly discussed the nature of love, attended performances of Ibsen's A Doll's House, and generally sought to remake their private lives to accord with their image of a modern society. The young founders of the Chinese Communist Party inherited the May 4th legacy. From its inception in 1921, the party advocated the liberation of women. After the party shifted its focus to rural organizing in the 1930s, though, that liberation was often subordinated to other revolutionary goals. Campaigns to end wife-beating and ban arranged marriages had to be carefully weighted against the need to win the support of peasant men. Though the party did succeed in modifying family power relationships in the rural base areas, increasingly it emphasized bringing women into the paid labor force as the key to their liberation. This narrow definition of the woman problem was shaped by two factors, a Marxist theory of revolution that emphasized class far more than gender, and a social reality in which minimizing conflict and maximizing production were critical to survival. When the Communist Party came to power in 1949, its approach to the liberation of women drew on the experience of organizing in the base areas. Women's equality was guaranteed in the Constitution of 1950, and the marriage law of the same year gave women the right to choose their own marriage partners and to demand a divorce. Women's feet were no longer bound, even in remote villages. Girls were given at least limited access to education. The Women's Federation was established by the national government to safeguard the interests of women. 
In the post-revolutionary period, though, women were primarily mobilized not to fight for gender equality, but to contribute to socialist construction. It was widely accepted that the establishment of socialism would automatically result in the liberation of women. But even though the public discussion of gender issues became muted, conflicts over the role of women continued to shape the course of the revolution in important ways. For instance, the Great Leap Forward of 1958-59, which brought women into the workforce in unprecedented numbers, ran aground partly because men and women alike rebelled at the construction of collective kitchens and nurseries, which threatened the family unit. During the Cultural Revolution, 1966-76, class struggle took precedence over all other issues, including those of gender equality. Serious disagreements among China's leaders about how to build socialism, as well as long-standing factional conflicts combined with popular social resentments about the persistence of old elites and the emergence of new ones after 1949. The result was an upheaval that disrupted every aspect of political and social life. Schools were closed, government bureaus shut down, political disagreements flared into deadly violence, and young people set out across China in groups devoted to exchanging experiences and making revolution. The history of the Cultural Revolution remains mired in controversy, both in China and abroad, making it very difficult to evaluate its effect on the status of women. Slogans such as, Women Hold Up Half the Sky, and portraits of heroic women workers and peasants adorned many billboards, but little official attention was given to assessing the gender inequalities that remained or designing measures to eliminate them. In fact, recognition of gender as a category distinct from class was regarded as reactionary. The Women's Federation, like many other organizations, was disbanded, and some of its leading officials were criticized for bourgeois attitudes. Women took on non-traditional tasks in the workplace, but their duties at home were not altered, and they were exhorted to shoulder cheerfully the burdens of the double day in the name of socialism. The complexities of courtship, marriage, and family life were reduced to the simple statement that politics should be in command in the home as well as in public. In spite of the official neglect of women's issues, though, the lives of young women in particular were profoundly affected by the Cultural Revolution. For all its terrible destructiveness, it conferred on young women a mobility previously denied them. Freed from family control, Young women Red Guards moved across the landscape more widely and in greater numbers than at any time in Chinese history. Like their male counterparts, they were encouraged to challenge parents, teachers, and officials, and to act with a confidence and enthusiasm probably never before permitted adolescent women in China. To be sure, when young urban people were sent to live permanently in the countryside in 1968, Women found themselves unprotected by familial networks and vulnerable to sexual and other abuse. Yet their years away from home and their interactions with their generational cohort created expectations and experiences that changed their lives irrevocably. After Mao Zedong's death in 1976 and the arrest of his wife, 
Jiang Qing and her political allies, cultural revolution policies were resoundingly rejected in every walk of life. Beginning in 1978, economic reforms began to restructure the lives of women. In the countryside, agriculture was decollectivized, and production was reorganized with households as the basic unit. Peasants were encouraged to engage in sideline production. Private markets were permitted, and the government raised the prices it paid for farm produce. These new policies increased women's opportunities to earn income, but also placed their labor firmly under the control of the head of household. Rather than the collective, reinforcing familial authority. In the cities, industrial enterprises were given expanded powers to hire and fire, and were made responsible for their own profits and losses. Since urban unemployment was a problem at the beginning of the 1980s, they had a large labor pool from which to draw. Many promptly decided that they would prefer to hire men rather than women. Who were considered unreliable workers because of their responsibilities in the home. The educational system was expanded, but at the same time, entrance qualifications at all levels were made more restrictive. Popular belief that girls were less capable than boys meant that female access to education remained limited. In both rural and urban sectors, individual accumulation and display of material goods. Became much more politically acceptable than at any time since 1949. This affected the way women dressed, the kinds of labor-saving devices they used at home, and the demands for household goods that accompanied an agreement to marry. Each of these changes meant that new types of work and behavior were expected of women. The effects of the economic reforms on women generated an enormous amount of discussion. Both in personal conversations and in the press, women's private lives became the focus of public debate in the 1980s for several other reasons as well. A number of problems that had been building for over a decade were of pressing concern to policymakers and citizens alike. The rate of population growth mandated an increasingly strict family planning policy. Which by the late 1970s was beginning to strain marital and family relations. The traditional preference for sons put intolerable pressure upon women. Those who bore daughters were often abused. Girl babies were sometimes killed or abandoned, and the success of the entire policy was threatened. Other problems loomed: large numbers of urban youth who had been sent to the countryside during the Cultural Revolution. Had delayed marriage in hopes that they would be able to return to the city, and now constitu constituted a large, aging, single, and dissatisfied population. The problem of finding a marriage partner was particularly acute for women, who were regarded as virtually unmarriageable by the age of thirty. Numerous marriages made in the political environment of the Cultural Revolution were deteriorating. Raising questions about the nature of marriage and the right to divorce, in spite of legal guarantees, the amount of control women should exercise over their marital situation was a matter of public debate. During the decade of the Cultural Revolution, attention to personal life had been regarded as bourgeois. In the post-Mao decade, public policy made discussion of personal life imperative. 
China's opening to the West in the 1980s also influenced the debate about women's roles. As part of a four-modernization drive, China was beginning to study, borrow, and buy Western technology. Foreign experts, business people, journalists, and diplomats became increasingly common in China. Foreign movies and books were eagerly received by a Chinese audience that, for years, had been isolated from the West. What sorts of Western values would accompany Western technology, and whether those values could or should be separated from that technology, were matters of discussion and disagreement in high government circles and among ordinary people as well. Stories in Chinese women's magazines reported on the situation of women in Western nations. Western fashions, family arrangements, and sexual morality became topics of public controversy. Old topics, new controversies. The situation of women in the 1980s and the public debate over what their social role should become was shaped by the past, but was not a reenactment of it. The world of pre-1949 China and the role that women played in the world was gone. Although the early 1980s saw a resurgence of female infanticide, elaborate marriage rituals, and other practices that looked like a return to the past, those practices took place in a radically changed historical context. Some social problems, such as female infanticide, were unintended consequences of the economic reforms. But if state policy had caused some of these practices to reappear. It also opposed them vigorously and with more effect than any pre-1949 government could have done. Other practices, such as parental control of marriage choice, were not、uh, were opposed not only by the state, but by a generation of young people born and brought up after 1949. Generational conflict over such issues was far more widespread than it had been even during the May Fourth Movement. Because of higher levels of literacy, advanced communications technology, increased mobility, and widened popular participation, the public debate in the 1980s involved large segments of the urban population and many rural dwellers as well. Although many women in China still suffered discrimination in working life and mistreatment in the family, they could raise questions that would have been unthinkable in an earlier era. And draw support from allies that had not existed before. Most notably, they could and did use the press to voice complaints, expose injustices, seek advice, and articulate support for or dismay at the social social changes of the 1980s. Although some of the topics under discussion had been raised first in the 1950s. The debates about women's issues in the 1980s were not a restatement of earlier concerns. Chinese publications before the Cultural Revolution had taken up such topics as the dangers of adolescent love, the appropriate time to marry, the virtues of late marriage and frugal weddings, the evils of extramarital affairs, and the heartbreak of divorce, the competing claims upon women of paid labor and household duties. And、even the permissible limits of fashion, the nineteen eighties discussion picked up these interrupted conversations, using categories and language familiar to readers from an earlier era. 
But as the Chinese social context changed rapidly in the 1980s, the discussion was carried along with it. Revolutionary comradeship was no longer mentioned as an indispensable element of marriage. It was replaced by notions of a companionate partnership managed by an emotionally sensitive wife. Adornment and sexuality became matters of public concern to a degree undreamed of in the 1950s. Female employment became problematic in new ways because of the economic reforms. Each of these issues was more complex, and the public pronouncements on it less unified than had been the case 30 years before. In all these areas, public discussion in the 1980s was shaped by a decisive rejection of the experiences of the Cultural Revolution. The fervor and enthusiasm with which women beautified themselves, the widespread support for moving women back into suitable lines of work, the discussions of womanly virtues in the press must all be understood as part of a reaction to cultural revolutionary norms. Conversely, it became impossible to advocate certain approaches to gender inequality because they were associated with the Cultural Revolution era. In the 1950s, the main culprit in women's oppression had been the feudal past. In the 1980s, the excesses of the Cultural Revolution were blamed as well. To an American reader, much of the discussions in the Chinese press might sound familiar. Descriptions of fashions, advice on how to snare a man, accounts of new marriages in crisis, strategies for juggling career and home responsibilities, all could be read as Chinese variations on articles in Red Book, Cosmopolitan, and Ms. magazines. Many of the conflicts faced by Chinese women in the 1980s resembled those of other societies at other times. In the United States after World War II, for instance, women were sent back into the home after a period of wartime mobilization that had moved them into roles previously reserved for men. American women's magazines in the 1950s featured articles about homemaking, adornment, and the importance of good mothering, topics that also figured prominently in the 1980s Chinese press. In both countries, a period of widespread social disruption was followed by an attempt to re-establish clear gender roles, and in both countries, this attempt was supported by large numbers of women as well as men. Yet, it is crucial to understand that China was not simply passing through a series of universal stages on the way to modernity, that its history cannot be reduced to a slightly exoticized version of our own. And it would be both insulting and misleading to conclude that Chinese women were mired in an earlier stage of historical development, 30 years behind the United States. The 1980s differed radically from the American 1950s. The ambitious modernization program devised by the post-Mao leadership sought to complete by the year 2000 the kinds of transformation that had occurred in the West over a much longer period. Chinese women found themselves trying to absorb changes and social strains similar to those brought about in the West through the Industrial Revolution, late 19th century urbanization, several wars, and the feminist movement all at once. It was as though Queen Victoria, Rosie the Riveter, 
Helen Gurley Brown and a host of others had appeared simultaneously on the scene, all proffering advice. Not surprisingly, Chinese women, themselves product of a complex tradition and a cataclysmic recent history, reacted with a mixture of fascination, incomprehension, and weariness that was entirely their own. They initiated some changes and acquiesced in others, but protested vigorously when they felt their interests threatened, as when changes in hiring practices made it more difficult for them to find certain jobs. Their situation was not a simpler, simple replication of the female experience elsewhere. Sources and Scope each chapter in this book is devoted to an aspect of women's lives that had become a subject of controversy or change in the 1980s. At the end of each chapter are translations that convey the flavor of the discussions in Chinese publications. The study draws on the periodical press, books for women, and interviews conducted from 1979 to 1986. Discussion about women's issues began in the late 1970s in official national publications, chief among them China Youth News, Zhongguo Qingnian Bao, and Chinese Women, Zhongguo Funyu. By the mid-1980s, a host of newly founded official, semi-official, and unofficial newspapers and magazines had taken up these issues. Most of these publications were new, and not much is known about their circulation, readership, or average lifespan. But a look at any urban newsstand, even outside the major cities, showed that these magazines continued to proliferate and sell quickly. Many, such as Women's World, Nuzi, Shujie, Home, Jiating, and Women's Friend, Fu Zhi You were directed specifically at a female audience. Books devoted to private life also appeared in great numbers after 1979. Many of these were handbooks of advice to young people. In contrast to periodicals, the books spoke with a more unified and generally more conservative voice. Often they took the form of letters asking for guidance, followed by lengthy replies. Unlike the complicated, detailed letters in the press, these missives were usually simple formula formulaic devices. In most cases, such collections of questions and answers appeared to have been written by a single author. These books were useful to us in identifying issues that national and local authorities considered especially problematic. China has a state-controlled press, and issues about the lives of women appeared in that press at least in part because they touched on areas of concern to the state. But official concern did not imply that government and party officials had a clear-cut set of policies they wanted to impose. State policy in the 1980s mandated a lessening of official control over many spheres of activity, from economic planning to marriage choice to fashion. Although the newspapers were unlikely to print direct criticisms of government policies, many women's issues fell outside the sphere of topics subject to direct censorship. Articles in the official press reflected the belief that some, aspect, some aspects of personal life should not be regulated by adherence to a state-imposed 
correct line. In addition, officials did not seem to know quite what to say about some of these private issues. Publications for women and young people stressed certain dilemmas and frequently provided a correct solution to those dilemmas. Yet, even though editors of state-controlled newspapers undoubtedly believed that their articles should teach a lesson, they did not always agree on what the content of that lesson should be. Readers of the official press showed a similar variety of outlooks. They wrote to advice columnists requesting help with their personal problems. Frequently, the columnists encouraged public discussion and published some of their results. The volume and diversity of public response indicated that young readers felt both great interest and great confusion about women's issues. Readers seemed to agree that some actions were socially acceptable while others were not, but they differed on where the bounds of social acceptability lay. The voices of editors and readers were too cacophonous to be orchestrated. The debate in the press spilled over into private discourse, where it became permissible to discuss aspects of personal life that had been politically suspect or even taboo during the Cultural Revolution. Both the authors lived in China from 1979 to 1981 and have visited frequently Our personal observations and conversations with Chinese friends revealed that the issues we were reading about were also of paramount concern to people we knew. When an author named Yu Luo Jing published a story describing her experiences with love, marriage, and divorce, for instance, it created a sensation among university students. They cut classes and abandoned homework when their turn came to read one of the hard-to-find copies of the magazine in which it appeared, which sold out almost immediately. As we listened to our friends fervently argue about the story, we realized that two things were happening. A debate about social and personal mores was beginning, one that was bound to profoundly affect women, and aspects of female life that had been invisible were becoming public, visible for the first time to us and to our Chinese friends. Some of our women friends were in their 20s, educated and unmarried. They had entered the university after passing a rigorous test of rigorous set of examinations in the late 1970s. Most had worked in the countryside or in factories for a number of years before becoming students. We also talked extensively to older women, educated before 1949 had remained concerned with women's issues throughout the tumultuous years after the revolution. Virtually all these women were urban intellectuals, and their viewpoints were in some respects not typical of Chinese women as a whole. Yet, even our limited survey of the concerns of individual women made it clear to us that the debate in the press was not a sterile exercise divorced from popular concerns. Most of this book focuses on women in urban China. Although there are over 100 million of them, they represent a scant one-fifth of the female population. They were the readers, as well as many of the writers, of the new women's press from which we have drawn much of our material. Every official and unofficial source available to us 
thus had a strong urban bias. However, several key women's issues arose overwhelmingly in a rural context, and the press relied on rural examples to discuss some of these problems. Among them were parental interference in marriage, the role of the daughter-in-law in the family, female infanticide, and domestic violence. We have included these discussions here, even though we were not able to supplement what we read with our own observations. This has left us in the awkward position of devoting the majority of the book to describing a minority of Chinese women, while giving just enough information about the rural majority to raise questions our book cannot answer. Yet, given the constraints of the written sources, and the impossibility of conducting extended rural fieldwork, we had no alternative. Rural Chinese women are too important to leave out, but an exhaustive treatment of their experience will have to be done by someone who has the opportunity to live in the countryside. A word about the prejudices of the authors, since the book was shaped by our questions as much as by the available answers. We came to the study of Chinese women as two American feminists, products ourselves of a specific scholarly training and historical era. Our analytical framework differed in some respects from that of the Chinese who were discussing women's issues. First, we owe a great intellectual debt to those Western scholars who came before us in investigating the lives of Chinese women. Some of them combed the Chinese press for clues to official policy, while others conducted interviews and ethnographic work in Taiwan and Hong Kong, as well as on the Chinese mainland. Taken together, their work has made it possible for us to place the debates and changes we witnessed in a broader historical context. Second, we have been influenced by the emerging feminist scholarship on countries other than China which has provided us with a rich comparative context. Like feminist scholars in other fields, we look at gender as one of the several basic principles around which every society is organized, and we seek to identify the relationships of power and inequality that structure gender roles in China. We employ this method not only to understand the experience of women, but also to illuminate other social problems that are central to China's development in the late 20th century. Gender relations are a powerful key to understanding the relationship between official ideology and popular values, the social costs of economic development, and the persistence of hierarchy in a society that has tried and rejected some dramatic routes to egalitarianism. We have tried to avoid an analysis that says Chinese society is good insofar as it becomes more like our own, or the oft-heard feminist twist on this, China is becoming a worse place for women as it comes to embrace the forms of oppression that Western and industrialized societies have imposed upon women. Yet, we pretend to no Olympian detachment from the history we record. As foreigners in China, outsiders to Chinese culture, we sometimes raised different questions from the ones that shaped the public debate. Rigid sexual socialization of children and the very limited social autonomy of women of all ages outside the family interested and disturbed us, but did not seem subject to public scrutiny in China. Some of the new developments we witnessed were also jarring. For instance, 
In rejecting the puritanical asceticism of the Cultural Revolution, many Chinese women embraced a notion of femininity that American feminists would find restrictive or demeaning. Understanding the historical reasons for their enthusiasm did not prevent us from wondering about its eventual consequences. Gender hierarchy is very much alive in 1980s China. In spite of government assurances that it is a feudal remnant whose disappearance is historically inevitable, it continues to appear, expressing itself in both familiar and novel forms. The subordination of women dismays us in Chinese society as it does in our own, though it does not surprise us. When we voice that dismay in this book, we do so realizing that the ideals of feminism have yet to be realized anywhere in the world. We hope this account of the lives of Chinese women will contribute to an understanding of the forms that gender inequality takes in different societies, since understanding women's subordination is an essential step toward eliminating it. Growing up female. When people stroll by the banks of a lotus pond, enjoying the sight of budding lotus flowers, began a 1985 handbook for young women, they cannot help but be deeply affected by the purity, grace, and vitality of the flowers, their beauty that emerges unstained from the mire, their noble qualities. And they naturally associate this with fair, slim, and graceful young girls. Girls entering the age of young womanhood, ages 14 to 18, undergo great physiological changes. How this stage develops, how the basis is laid, often will deeply affect their entire lives. For this reason, enabling them to grow up healthy and not become deformed or break when they are washed by wind and rain or infested by insect pests, is not only the urgent desire of young women themselves, but also a matter of deep concern to their elders, teachers, relatives, and friends. When a young woman reached adolescence in 1980s China, her elders regarded her as uniquely beautiful and uniquely vulnerable. She became the target of publications that sought to guide and protect her by explaining female capabilities and describing proper female behavior. The advice literature discussed the two social roles she would play as an adult. Worker at paid productive labor and worker at unpaid reproductive labor, that is, as wife and mother. This chapter analyzes the messages young women received about how to fill the first role by choosing a career appropriate to female capabilities. Although much advice literature concerned areas of public controversy, the opinions of adolescent women themselves were heard very little in the discussion. Unlike older women whose views on love and courtship, marriage, family relations, and divorce appear later in this book, young women from ages 14 to 18 were expected to listen and to ask questions, not to hold forth themselves. Because most of the writing about adolescence in 1980s China was of this type, this chapter and chapter two of necessity draw largely upon the words of adults to explore the experience of adolescence.
They risk describing things as adults would like them to be, rather than as they are. Yet, by listening to the voices of adults as they explain, cajole, chastise, and warn, it is possible to learn something about adolescence and a great deal about adult attitudes toward the socialization of young women. In preparing for their role in the working world, young women were offered ambiguous guidance. They were encouraged to develop their own talents and character in spite of physical limitations and social obstacles they might meet along the way. But while exhorting young women to accomplish all they could, books of advice and articles in the press also subtly communicated the conviction that girls were inferior to boys in intellect, physical ability, and emotional stability. Only by overcoming their female weaknesses, girls were told, could they hope to achieve equally with their male classmates. This message was reinforced by the use of role models who performed well by male standards. Female capabilities. Is biology destiny? Is it true that girls are not as smart as boys? Young women asked in several collections of letters and advice. One high school student preparing for the university entrance exam was told by all her girlfriends that she should not waste the effort. Girls, they said, are more stupid than boys to start with, and after they marry and have children, they become so preoccupied with housework that they cannot hope to achieve much, even with a college degree. When she looked around for evidence to counter their opinions, she could not help noticing that most historical and contemporary personages in China and abroad were men. She began to wonder, said her letter to a former teacher, whether girls were really inferior in intelligence to boys. At first glance, the answer usually given to this question appears to be no. Girls were invariably told to remember that Madame Curie, the only scientist in the world to win the Nobel Prize for science twice, was a woman. Most replies also cited examples of other famous women such as Han Dynasty historian Ban Zhao, Song Dynasty poet Li Qingzhao, whose brilliant scholar husband tried in vain to write poems as captivating as hers, and Rosa Luxemburg. Since the founding of the People's Republic, girls were reminded, many women have become pilots, ship captains, scientific researchers, and contributors to industrial and agricultural production. With so many examples of female achievement to emulate, the advice ran, girls should be convinced that it was possible for them to achieve as much as boys. Yet these authors qualified their assertion that boys and girls are equal in a number of ways. Although they pointed out that male and female brains show no differences, that might influence intelligence, they often went on to describe gender differences in ways that made female intelligence seem both different and naturally inferior. In August 1982, China Youth News published an article entitled The Special Characteristics of Female Intelligence. 
The article, written in technical scientific language, indicated that a difference in brain function between girls and boys first becomes evident in childhood. Experiments showed that girls had stronger tactile feeling, which made them good at fine motor activity, that they spoke and read earlier, that their hearing was more developed, and that it was easier for them to learn foreign languages. Boys, on the other hand, were stronger in spatial perception and vision. The reason for this, the author ventured, was that in boys, the speaking and space perception abilities were installed in different halves of the brain. In girls, verbal and nonverbal abilities were spread throughout both cerebral hemispheres. Perhaps the two hemispheres of the female cerebrum, the author commented, do not have a very specialized division of labor. The article thus presented controversial areas in brain research as though they were universally accepted scientific fact. This author felt that gender differences in brain function had important implications for social engineering. Moving from an account of sex differences in elementary school children to a comment on adult capabilities, he concluded, it is easier for girls to learn foreign languages and so it is relatively easy for them to take up occupations that require proficiency in languages. When girls select an area for independent study, they must take into account the special features of their brain function to utilize female strengths. Only in this way can a girl grow up to be useful. If her choice is inappropriate, twice the effort will yield half the result, of course, this is not absolute. Clearly, it was not absolute for boys who were not enjoined from pursuing careers in languages or other verbal arts. For girls, though, childhood brain function and later occupational choice were explicitly linked. The perception that girls were inherently better at boys at typing while boys were inherently superior at math, was expressed in private conversation with us by young people of both sexes, including women whose academic performance belied the typology. In the advice literature, analyses of gender difference often contained an implied rating of higher male and lower female orders of intelligence, after the usual disclaimer that men and women have no great difference in inborn abilities, one author quickly added, but this is not to say that women and men are completely alike in all respects. For example, the thinking of male classmates is comparatively broad and quick. They have wide-ranging interests, a strong ability to get to work, and they like to think things out for themselves, but sometimes they are not careful or thorough enough. Female classmates often have stronger memory and language ability and are more diligent and meticulous, but they have one-track minds, do not think dynamically enough, have a rather narrow range of activity, and easily become interested in trivial matters. Their moods fluctuate easily, they are shy, and they don't dare to raise questions boldly. These differences in intellectual style, the author continued, have an adverse effect on female academic achievement. 
In their study methods, female classmates are accustomed to repeat, write, and recall from memory. They tend to stress grades and are good at rote memorizing. Male classmates, on the other hand, are bold in practice, like independent thinking, and dare to doubt pre-existing conclusions. In the lower grades, perhaps the achievements of male classmates cannot keep pace with those of female classmates, yet their knowledge and intelligence increase through independent thinking and practice. Therefore, when they get to the senior middle school age, their grades often surpass those of female classmates. In the study of mathematics, female classmates often rely on imitation and mechanical memory, are poor at grasping the overall situation, and have a rather weak capacity for logical thought. When they meet difficulties in solving a problem, they often first seek help from a book or look for a similar problem in the examples, while it is more common for male classmates to think things out for themselves. What was being described was not merely gender difference, it was gender hierarchy. Male intellectual style was clearly preferable, and in fact, the article went on to encourage young women to overcome what amounts to a learning disability and try to emulate their male classmates. Although it is certainly possible that girls and boys in general may exhibit some of these differences in learning style, the authors of advice to young women seldom asked where biologically based gender differences leave off and social training begins. In failing to do so, they left the field to biology and the scientific legitimation of a gender hierarchy based on the superior intelligence of men. Young women were also told that their intellectual capabilities would be altered by the onset of puberty. Here again, the message was mixed. On one hand, young women were told that with adolescence, their intellectual development would reach its peak. The adolescent girl is full of exuberant energy. Her memory is especially sharp. Her brain is like a computer that can store a great deal of information. Her powers of logical and imagistic thinking all develop greatly. This is the best time to study and amount to something. It is during this period that many girls, after rigorous training, develop into outstanding dance performers, singers, athletes, and other talented people, and bring honor to the motherland. Even at her pinnacle of achievement, a young woman apparently was limited to accomplishments in athletics and the performing arts. No one suggested that her powers of logical and imagistic thinking could rival those of a young man. Furthermore, this productive period in her life was not to be of long duration. In fact, the advice literature warned, puberty might be the last chance for a girl to achieve anything of note, because after this period, when she is confronted with love, marriage, and childbearing, every kind of interference and burden will become heavier. On the other hand, adolescence might already be too late, for it was then that girls fell behind boys in intelligence tests. Although written sources said very little about why this happens, 
Teachers and parents often blamed puberty. Young women in middle school were told repeatedly to lower their intellectual aspirations. In one such case, a friend of ours who was preparing for the university entrance exam came home from school one day very discouraged. Her science teacher, a middle-aged woman, had called the female students together for a serious talk. Acknowledging that it was all right for the girls to take the entrance exam, she advised them not to pick a science as their preferred area of study. Girls, she told them, just did not have the mental equipment to study science. In childhood, she continued, they might do very well in school, but at this time in their lives, that is puberty, their bodies would undergo physiological changes, their brains would grow more fuzzy, and their attention would turn to matters like establishing a family. Leave science to the boys whose brains are sharper, she advised. If you want to study something, study humanities. This kind of guidance was not a matter of state policy, yet state-approved publications perpetuated the idea that girls lagged behind boys in intelligence. In doing so, they both reflected popular social prejudice and helped to create an environment in which it was permissible to say such things to girl students. Boys got the message too. A woman professor complained to us that despite her efforts to convince her 10-year-old son that men and women were equal, he came home from school every day proclaiming his satisfaction at being a member of the superior sex. In much of the advice literature, girls were reminded that their inferiority was physical as well as intellectual. Descriptions of a young woman's physical development at puberty were often constructed so that female worth was measured by male standards. A 1982 article on labor and exercise for young women, for instance, rather than dwelling on the capabilities or capacities of the female body, proceeded almost immediately to a detailed series of comparisons with pubescent boys. Girls, it said, have a fine bone structure and low bone density, as well as muscles that lack the ability to contract and move powerfully. Their subdermal fat makes their waists and legs heavy, and the center of the body rather low, so that they cannot rival men in strength or speed. Compared to young men, again, young women have less blood, fewer cells, less hemoglobin, a smaller heart, and less lung capacity. They tend to breathe more quickly during exercise and to breathe from the abdomen, increasing abdominal pressure and influencing the circulation of blood in the pelvis. This affects the reproductive organs, creating a special physiological problem for women. In sum, the article concluded, whether in functions of the kinetic system, blood circulation, respiration, and adjustment of body temperature, or in endurance and adaptability in heavy manual labor and physical training, young women cannot match young men of the same age. Although many biological facts presented in this article are beyond dispute, it was striking for the way in which it focused on the weakness of women 
when compared to men on selected measures. Like other articles of its genre, it made no mention of scientific evidence about the superior endurance and flexibility of females. It outlined not sex differences, but a gender hierarchy in which male strengths were the sole standard of value. In addition to their intellectual and physical inadequacies, young women were warned that if they did not control themselves, their emotional development also might lag behind that of men. Their natural sensitivity to the nuances of human relationships might become a narrow-minded concern with the shortcomings of their neighbors or an obsession with what people were saying about them behind their backs. Two explanations were given for those female emotional defects. The first was biological, again singling out puberty as the culprit. As an adolescent girl's body matures, she becomes more sensitive and attentive to the attitudes of others. Her expectations of self and others are raised, but she often lacks self-confidence and is afraid she will not be understood or taken seriously. Sensitivity becomes oversensitivity and what one author called suspicionitis, a psychological abnormality of female adolescence. Puberty apparently did not have this deleterious effect on boys, and girls were told to emulate them. In general, boys very seldom catch suspicionitis. Why is this? Because in general, the social circle activities, interests, and hobbies of boys are a bit broader. So many things in life absorb them that they're not inclined to turn around and round in the small circle of suspicion. Throw yourself into the rich and varied sea of life. Add a little rough and readiness to your character. Add a bit of boy's flavor. Let yourself become lively, optimistic, and open-minded, and suspicionitis will not be able to find you. The second explanation of women's emotional inferiority was historical. In feudal society, a term used in popular parlance to describe China before 1949, women had very constricted horizons. They paid excessive attention to human relationships because they were not permitted to do anything else. In a discussion of why women gossip more than men, one author explained, in feudal society, men were respected and women were deemed inferior. Women didn't go out much, lacked a wide range of contacts, and easily became narrow-minded. Hence, the topic of conversation among sisters and sisters-in-law was often the strengths and weaknesses of their neighbors. But after the revolution of 1949, according to this author, the social constraints shaping female personality had fallen away. We are women of a new age. We have equal status with men. We can be as determined as men. And like them, we can come into contact with society, broadening our field of vision. Under these circumstances, the author concluded, women who continued to gossip were caught in a web of our own making, acting like detestable long-tongued women, and thereby lowering our own status, dissipating our energy for study and work, and letting our finest hour go to waste.
If women fail to eradicate the scars left by feudalism, that is, fail to become more like men in their emotional makeup, then they had no one but themselves to blame for their own inferiority. The assumption of female difference, intellectual, physical, and emotional, had social consequences that perpetuated the existing sexual division of labor. The school curriculum, for instance, reflected certain assumptions about appropriate activities for girls and boys. In 1984, preschool girls in a Shanghai daycare center performed a dance for foreigners where they fed, changed, and combed the hair of baby dolls while their male classmates looked on from the sidelines. Adolescent girls and boys were also introduced to a very to very different types of activities in middle school. In one Shanghai school, a middle school principal introduced a rigorous new physical education program that consisted of instruction in boxing for boys and dancing for girls. Nan Quan Nu Wu. A news report of his efforts extolled the virtues of exercise. The division of exercise along gender lines was not subjected to critical scrutiny. After-school activities, too, were commonly expected to feature instruction in gender-specific hobbies. A male reader of China Youth News proposed organizing girls' clubs modeled on those run by the Communist Youth League of Romania. The reader approvingly described the range of activities offered by the Romanian clubs. Talks on health education, clothing design, makeup, marriage, and divorce law, how to be a good wife and mother, and cooking. These activities are good, he commented, because they take account of the physiology and hobbies of young women, satisfy their particular needs, and provide them with knowledge, which will enable them to organize a fa happy family and advance toward a new life. For sooner or later, young women must marry, their future wives and mothers, and at the same time, must also take on the responsibility of looking after household duties. In both rural and urban cases, the belief that girls were intellectually, physically, and emotionally inferior to boys, an old belief newly clothed in scientific garb helped to legitimize the limiting of educational and career opportunities for girls. In 1983, girls were 43.7% of all primary school students nationwide, less than 40% of middle school students, and slightly over a quarter of all post-secondary students. In the countryside, the ratio was often much more lopsided. One 11-year-old rural girl pointed out in a 1982 letter that in 1978, 12 of her 50 classmates were girls, but by 1980, when she reached fourth grade, the number of girl students had declined to five. Parents had pulled out their daughters from school to herd cows and farm, reasoning as they had in pre-revolutionary times, that since girls eventually would marry into another family, there was no point in educating them beyond simple literacy. Even the goal of literacy often was not reached. A 10% sampling of the 1982 population 
showed that almost 70% of the illiterate and barely literate in China were female. Even more disturbing was that in spite of overall gains in literacy among women, the gap between men and women was increasing. Only 14% of all 12-year-old girls were illiterate or semi-literate, compared to 95% of all women over 60. But 12-year-old girls composed 72% of the illiterates and semi-literates in their age cohort, whereas 60-year-old women were only 64% of the illiterate in theirs. The evidence suggests that as the population as a whole became more literate, women did not share equally in the benefits. In urban areas, where a girl's connection to her natal family remained stronger after marriage and education for both sexes was more highly valued than in the countryside, parents nevertheless often piled household chores on their adolescent daughters so that their sons were free to study. Scattered voices were raised to criticize these assertions of natural difference between the sexes and the assumption of female inferiority that often accompanied them. Occasional articles began to emphasize the importance of parental encouragement rather than biology in determining a young girl's development. One author commented, If girls were given the same treatment as boys, I firmly believe that a spirit of confidence and steadfast bravery would take root and sprout in the virgin soil of their purer souls. As more and more families have only one child under the family limitation program and find themselves raising a daughter as sole heir, this type of thinking will probably become more common. Some educators also wondered whether gender differences might be partly social in origin. In 1981, one group of teachers concluded that girl students did not do as well as boys in senior middle school because of problems with the teaching, not the innate abilities of the students. They set up a separate science class for girls, although the humanities classes remained co-ed. After three years of segregated science classes, all 46 girls in the class passed the university entrance exam, and 28 were admitted to key universities. Their average total score was 5.1 points higher than that of women in regular classes, and their average math score was 6.7 points higher. This experiment suggested that the normal classroom situation trained girls to be less competent than boys in science, a problem that some Chinese educators, like their American counterparts, are beginning to recognize. But separate classes for women, even when intended to develop women's strengths, could also reinforce the sexual division of labor. A Xi'an Women's College, established in 1984, for instance, enabled several hundred women a year to receive post-secondary training. Its founder, Shen Huili, was a professor of aircraft engineering at Northwest Industrial University, who felt that women should have more opportunities to receive technical training. She personally solicited government support 
obtained funding and borrowed classrooms for a new type of school appropriate to the conditions of women. The college offered three majors, industrial accounting, applied computer science, and secretarial skills. While it and other institutions like it will help to meet the expanding demand for higher education facilities, its graduates will be suited for support work in technical and secretarial positions, not for the type of scientific research that is currently dominated by men. In the attitudes and institutions they encountered every day then, young women received a subtle but clear message that they were inferior to men intellectually, physically, and emotionally. At the same time, they were told much more directly that the constitution of the People's Republic of China guarantees them equal rights with men in all spheres of life, political, economic, cultural, and social, including family life. They were reminded that old-fashioned thinking about women, not state-condoned policies or attitudes, was the cause of gender discrimination. Because the prejudice of valuing men over women still has a certain amount of support in society, in your studies or in finding a job, you will meet with more discrimination than a man. Yet they were told it should be possible for them to triumph over social discrimination. The old ideas of a minority were said to be on the decline, merely a source of temporary worry to women. And while obstruction is a bad thing, what counts as the person facing the obstruction? The message, like most given to young women, was ambiguous. It acknowledged and condemned the continued existence of gender discrimination and let young women know that the attitudes they may encounter at home or at school should not go unchallenged. It also took account of the psychological damage done to young women by repeated encounters with adults who valued them less than their brothers. At the same time, it put the responsibility for challenging these attitudes almost solely on the shoulders of young women themselves, and sometimes even chastised those who let the pervasive social prejudice around them affect their sense of self. One young woman who had just failed the college entrance exams and could not find a job because all the local work units wanted to hire men was told by her uncle, I remember that in elementary and junior high school you were always a top student, but after you entered senior middle school your grades fell. I felt sorry for you and only found out later that this was a consequence of your parents' view that boys are more important than girls. They wanted to guarantee that your younger brother would pass the university entrance exam, and so they only asked him to study hard and didn't want him to dirty his hands with housework. They pressed on you all the endless household tasks of buying food, cooking, and laundry. How could you study well? This bias of theirs did not mean that they didn't love you dearly. It was the mischief wrought by the view that boys are more important than girls. I was about to have a good talk with your parents to help them change this incorrect thinking. But what was your own view on how to deal with this pressure? You said, I'll have to find a boyfriend a little sooner, 
and sacrifice myself in the future for my husband and child. Foolish girl, that kind of talk is too lacking in ambition. You shouldn't fall apart after a single setback. You should leap over the barrier and hurry forward. The uncle went on to suggest that she should either continue with her studies or organize a group of young women to start their own business in a suitable line of work, such as mending, handicraft production, or childcare. Ironically, each of these activities would help to reinforce the very gender differences she was supposed to be transcending. In much of the advice literature, authority figures took the side of young women in their struggle to advance and exhorted them not to lose faith in themselves. If you want to progress, a woman teacher told a girl student, you will meet obstacles. Females can encounter them, and so can males. If we think that this is because females are not as bright as males, and for this reason waver in our confidence, we are just psychologically laying down our arms before the battle and suffering defeat. A girl who sees her grades decline in senior middle school, the teacher continued, should not conclude that it is happening because she is a girl. If she observes carefully, she will notice that the boys' grades are plummeting too. Yet although this teacher meant to encourage her girl students, her message did not prepare them to deal with the attitudes they most commonly encountered about their capabilities. No one told a boy that his grades were going down because he was a boy, and in the Chinese social environment of the 1980s, the thought would be extremely unlikely to cross his mind. Girls, on the other hand, were surrounded by social messages that confirmed their sense of inferiority. Their elders told them to consciously strengthen the training of their capacity for independent thought and logical thinking, and boldly engage in creative thinking activities. That is, think more like a man. But this type of encouragement was not likely to overcome their sense that they were starting out life with a handicap, being female. Contemporary advice to young women in China presented discrimination against women as a remnant of feudal thought while actively disseminating modern scientific messages about female inferiority. Many of these scientific assertions were gleaned from Western literature. In the contemporary West, as in China, they were used to perpetuate gender hierarchy. But in China, the bearers of these messages were often the same writers who asserted that gender inequality was virtually a thing of the past, needing only the courage and effort of individual young women to finish it off completely. Although their intention was to encourage young women, the authors of advice literature imparted a confusing set of guidelines. Eager to buttress their arguments with modern scientific evidence, they often did not question the assertion that gender hierarchy had a natural basis. Impressed by the improvement in the status of women that they witnessed after the revolution, they seldom addressed the need for concerted social action to redress the inequalities that remained. Lack of public attention to the roots of gender hierarchy contributed to a situation in which women's inferior status remained socially acceptable to many in China.
In the classroom, girls were told that they would do well if they acted more like boys. At work, young women were presented with female role models whose achievements were measured by male standards. In preparing for a socially approved marriage, on the other hand, women were told to accentuate their femaleness. This message emerged after the end of the Cultural Revolution, and no broad social consensus existed on the proper way to present oneself as a woman. Much of the advice literature said, for instance, that beauty and personal adornment were important and natural concerns for young women. Yet, the advisors also warned that good looks were not as important as good health and proper behavior, and that certain types of beautification were morally questionable. The relationship between physical adornment and female sexuality was a matter of public debate, as was the whole question of sexual morality for unmarried women. What sort of attire and makeup are socially acceptable? When women dress up, what messages do they convey about their attractiveness and availability? And who is the intended audience? Does a connection exist between adornment and female vanity, between a woman's vanity and her sexual downfall? Sexuality, young women were told, has its time, adulthood, and place, marriage, but multiple dangers awaited the adolescent girl who chose to explore it. This warning was driven home by tales that graphically described the fate of young women who strayed from acceptable codes of behavior. How should a young woman pick her way through this enticing and dangerous territory and emerge safely from adolescence as a respectable candidate for marriage. In short, how should she present and manage her sexuality? On this topic, advice for young women, much of it contradictory, abounded. Beauty and its perils. In 20th century China, what a woman wears has not been merely a matter of aesthetic preference. It has often been an expression of a conscious political stance. Chu Jin, a revolutionary who worked for the overthrow of the Qing dynasty, had her picture taken in men's attire to emphasize her rejection of traditional female roles. When communists were purged by Chiang Kai-shek in 1927, many young women with bobbed hair were executed because Chiang's men assumed, correctly, that cutting off one's braids indicated revolutionary sympathies. Women who joined the communist movement during its years in the countryside adopted the military dress of their male comrades. After 1949, women dressed plainly except for a brief interval of political and social liberalization in 1956. Urban women in the early years of the People's Republic sometimes explained their austere appearance as a badge of personal liberation. As one put it, the women of New China, especially women workers, cadres, and intellectuals, are truly able to work independently and have completely equal status with men. 
We don't need to use our dress and makeup to try to please our husbands. Dressing in dark, simple clothes made a statement that women no longer needed to trade sexual attractiveness for economic security. Yet, revolutionary dress had its compulsory aspect as well. From 1957 to 1976, each new political campaign brought with it a demand that everyone dress plainly to show off their identification with the masses. In many cities, caterers kept a set of old faded clothes in the closet to don whenever the political situation demanded it. With the onset of the Cultural Revolution, everyone began to wear army-style green as a sign of revolutionary zeal. As in the 1920s, a woman's coiffure was thought to indicate her politics, and groups of Red Guards chopped off the braids of women on the street, accusing them of politically incorrect attitudes. In such an environment, interest in fashion and adornment was regarded as bourgeois and counter-revolutionary. One of the major criticisms leveled at Wang Guangmei, the wife of head of state Liu Shaoqi, was that she had worn low-cut and revealing dresses on an official visit to Indonesia. These political attitudes coexisted easily with the traditional belief, still current in many parts of rural China, that a woman who conspicuously adorned herself was sexually loose and morally degenerate. Nowhere did the public messages for young women change so radically in the 1980s as in the area of adornment. Opinion about fashion, as about many other things, reacted against the compulsory austerity of the Cultural Revolution. Political slogans on every billboard came down, replaced in many cases by pictures of attractive women selling everything from industrial machinery to cosmetics. The leftist line of previous years was blamed for pitting revolution against the beautification of life in general and female adornment in particular. In the 1980s political environment, dressing up, not down, was regarded as a liberating act. Attention to dress was considered a natural byproduct of a rising standard of living, indirect proof that the new economic reforms were successful. As one magazine article explained, Along with the leap in development of our nation's economy and the rise in standard of living, the demand for the beautification of life has become extraordinarily urgent among the broad masses, especially women. To make oneself up in daily life, to improve one's looks, is regarded by people as a sign of respect and courtesy towards comrades and friends. Young women, who were generally thought to love beauty to a greater extent than others, were encouraged to pursue what one magazine called the new health and beauty craze. At the same time, newspaper and magazine articles warned young women of the dangers of paying attention only to how they looked, rather than their physical and moral health. A series of new magazines guided the nascent connoisseur of fashion through the uncharted territory of style at home and abroad. 
Chief among these publications was Fashion, 时装时装 a Beijing quarterly that began publication in 1980. The winter 1983 issue is divided between introductions to Parisian fashion and descriptions of new clothing collections being produced in northeast China. Sultry blonde models showed off coming attractions in women's attire. While European men with smoldering expressions, leather jackets, and striped pants sulked on their way across the pages of features on men's clothing. A photo essay on Paris street dress contained such captions as, "A family of large and small jeans." Both men and women's clothes can expose the back, and. Shorts can expose more of the vigor and grace of the leg. The stories on domestic clothing included men in corduroy suits, bow ties, and letterman's jackets, women in silk frocks and yellow pants suits, and two features on the traditional Chinese gown or chipao, a fitted garment with high side slits. Many articles showed how to lay out patterns for ski outfits and winter coats, and a special feature explained, with illustrations, five ways to wear a scarf draped across the shoulders. A year later, while the basic format of the magazine had not changed, it had become bolder in the poses struck by both Chinese and foreign models. A young woman leaned. Provocatively against a pillar, sucking a stick of candied ha fruit. Women in leather outfits nestled against men in matching togs, and an Asian man and woman flanked a blonde couple. The sportswear-clad shoulders of all four touching daringly. Japanese companies placed advertisements for sewing equipment in most issues. In early 1985, a Japanese hospital took out an ad demonstrating the beneficial effects of cosmetic surgery on an Asian woman's receding chin, complete with before and after pictures. These magazines, like their counterparts in the United States, had two aims: to give practical guidance in how to dress, and to satisfy readers' taste for glamour. And if only by any window, romance. Soon, the connection between fashion and romance was taken up explicitly by other women's magazines, which began to run articles on such subjects as what a young woman should wear on her first date. Magazines were only one means of publicizing new styles. Fashion shows became popular by the mid nineteen eighties. Special troops of models were organized in the major cities. As some of these troops began to model fashions by Pierre Cardin and Japanese designers, an article in People's Daily made a half-hearted attempt to distinguish fashion shows in China from those in the West. There, in the West, the performance of fashion models is purely commercial. But in our country, most take artistic performance as the dominant factor, while doing a commercial performance at the same time. Performance not only reveals the beauty of the clothing and attracts consumers, 
but also leads people to love beauty, understand beauty, and attain beauty. Although many, many in the urban population found the clothing of Cardan and other Western designers incomprehensible, the job of fashion model was highly coveted. When one troupe opened its ranks to newcomers in late 1984, the applicants included not only workers, peasants, childcare workers, service workers, and unemployed youth, but also college graduates and graduate students. Hairstyle and cosmetics also garnered their share of attention. Newspapers and women's magazines offered instruction on the appropriate hairdo for each facial shape and provided tips on how to preserve a permanent, as long as possible, keep it out of the rain, use moderate amounts of hair cream, wear curlers while sleeping, and learn to push, pull, and press the hair into shape. Illustrated magazine stories featured pieces by a Hong Kong cosmetologist who described with illustrations the 10 steps in applying foundation, powder, eyeshadow, purple and blue, mascara, eyebrow pencil, blusher, and lipstick. The new magazine, Chinese and Foreign Women, introducing an article by a professional makeup man, explained Our readers have sent us numerous letters saying, before we thought of beauty, but did not dare to be beautiful. Now we want to be beautiful, but don't know how. We hope you will carry pieces that introduce in detail knowledge about makeup for everyday use. The purpose of the article was to teach readers how to make themselves up to be more beautiful, how to conceal worrisome wrinkles, as well as to provide them with knowledge about redoing the contours of the facial features and eyes without surgery, lest makeup prove insufficient to conceal nature's flaws. However, the magazine Chinese Women also published a list of 13 hospitals nationwide that performed cosmetic surgery. Personal adornment was not only of concern to young women, it was also encouraged and justified by middle-aged female political authorities. In 1984, the chairperson of the Shanghai Women's Federation, Tan Feng Yu, appeared at a tea hosted by a beauty parlor and endorsed the use of makeup. Later, she told a reporter that on an official visit to Hong Kong, she and the other women delegates looked better and were better received after they began to wear light makeup. Her assertion that makeup enhanced a woman's job effectiveness was echoed by 87 women teachers at a Shanghai teacher's college who expressed desires for permanence, makeup, and removal of facial hair. One of them, a political instructor, explained that using cosmetics to improve her appearance would enable her to teach more energetically. This interest in beautification of the face was frequently coupled with advice on how to achieve a more attractive body. At a Beijing elementary school during evening hours, young and middle-aged women combined a beauty boxing exercise routine designed to take off excess pounds 
with lectures on hair care and makeup. Their instructor, a 42-year-old gymnastics coach, was preparing to publish a book of her exercises, Jane Fonda style, with accompanying music cassettes. Other publications, like the book Wishing You a More Healthy and Beautiful Youth, offered young women instruction on such diverse topics as how to dress, what to do about bad breath and body odor, and how to exercise muscles in the face, arms, chest, stomach, and legs. Regular columns in national and regional youth magazines dispensed advice to young women readers worried about facial hair. See a doctor and use a depilatory cream. And excess weight. Exercise regularly and limit sugar intake. In another magazine feature, an exquisitely attired model with long wavy hair touted the importance of good posture, demonstrating 12 graceful ways to stand, walk, and sit. But as with facial beauty, more drastic remedies were suggested for those female bodies unresponsive to diet, exercise, and correct deportment. In 1985, for instance, a Guangzhou factory began to market a device resembling a length of garden hose attached to a turkey baster on one end, one end and a brazier cup on the other. Its pumping action was intended to restore sagging breast tissue and enlarge the bust. Beauty had thus become a socially approved concern for women of all ages by the mid-1980s. The cultivation of an attractive appearance was regarded by many as an assertion of personal identity that had been impermissible during the Cultural Revolution. Women enthusiastically made use of the freedom to adorn themselves, sometimes describing their new modes of dress as an explicit attack on feudal notions of behavior that required women to make themselves as inconspicuous as possible. But the movement toward gender-specific adornment re-established old values, even while seeming to reject them. The idea that a woman should look like a woman, not strive for a unisex appearance, was part of the reassertion of gender as a natural and valued division in society. Even though the move toward fashionable dress was restorative, of previous gender roles, many observers regarded it as subversive of proper behavior for Chinese women. Articles in the press cautioned young women in particular that single-minded pursuit of beauty could be dangerous to their physical well-being, their national identity, and their personal morality. The warnings about health hazards were couched in scientific terms, and they included almost every accoutrement of 1980s fashion. Heavy makeup was criticized for interfering with the excretion of wastes through the skin and burdening the kidneys and lungs. Gold and silver jewelry were pinpointed as a cause of contact dermatitis. Shoes with heels higher than three centimeters 
were faulted for cutting off circulation to the toes and leading to toe deformities. Tight-fitting jeans were identified as a source of pressure on the nerves of the lower back and pain or numbness in the thighs. Young women were also cautioned to avoid excessively strict dieting lest they end up in the hospital attached to an IV. One of the more extreme cases of damage incurred in the pursuit of beauty involved a young woman who secretly used industrial glue from a factory to stick on false eyelashes. She inadvertently glued her eyelids shut and after many unsuccessful trips to the hospital, finally unglued them with a solvent obtained from the manufacturer. In several of these cases, authors invoked the authority of foreign researchers. Presumably, the foreign scientific evidence was meant to show that the criticisms were not a result of national prejudice, that even in the fashionable West, people were not willing to sacrifice health to the demands of beauty. Yet foreign standards of beauty also came under criticism, especially in the early years of the fashion explosion. Young women workers and students were sent home in some places for wearing bizarre clothing. Their elders frequently reminded them that beauty had national character. It would be inappropriate, one writer commented, for young Chinese women to follow the custom of the African tribe who found long necks beautiful and lengthened them by fastening copper rings around them. Similarly, writers discouraged young women from slavishly copying Western adornment. One author poked fun at an adolescent girl who often took foreign as the standard, and the peculiar and odd as beautiful, dyeing her hair blonde, wearing provocative colors, and generally dressing in a way the author characterized as not in keeping with our nation's customs. As fashion magazines increasingly featured foreign models in avant-garde clothing, however, these warning voices became easier for young people to ignore. After all, even a top woman official like Hao Jianxu, alternate secretary in the Secretariat of the Central Committee, dismissed objections to fashionable dress. In a time of rapid social change, she said, not everyone would think alike. Some comrades would exhibit unliberated thinking. But dressing up should be regarded, she felt, not as an expression of bourgeois lifestyle, but as an indication of the flourishing development of socialist production. Although the term bourgeois often had been used to castigate those who hankered after foreign material goods and foreign thinking, in 1980s China, fashionable clothing, both Western and Chinese, began to be cleansed of its bourgeois taint. Aside from its danger to health and its effect on national identity, fashion was sometimes suspected of posing a threat to the personal morality of young women. Women were demeaned and trivialized, 
some writers felt, when female appearance was commodified. Sounding very much like critics in the United States, these authors decry the use of images of attractive women in product advertisements. In an ad for a tire factory, for instance, a mini-skirted damsel in high-heeled shoes swung in a tire, her bare legs dangling seductively. China Youth News reprinted the ad with a sardonic caption, a rubber tire and a fashionable woman, like a horse and cow in heat, have nothing to do with each other, but form a pleasing contrast. Do the goods become glamorous? Probably the author racked his brains to come up with this ad. Since the price is reasonable and the maker honest, why have a girl make eyes at the customers? Even more dangerous than the use of women to sell commodities, these authors said, was the commodification of women themselves. In rural western Zhejiang, for instance, young women wearing heavy makeup and attractive clothing literally hurled themselves in front of trucks on the area's single highway in order to persuade drivers to stop and eat at local roadside diners. At the instigation of the restaurant owners, one newspaper reported, some of these women had even acted in ways that offend public decency, presumably by making sexual advances to the drivers. Other young women, writers warned, had begun to deck themselves out for sale through marriage to men who could pay the price. An advice handbook linked the pursuit of fashion with the onset of moral decay and personal ruin. Some girl students are fond of wearing perfume and high heels, and after school they dress even more elaborately and saunter through the streets. They feel that the more fashionably they dress, the higher their social status. Some don't study and busy themselves finding a boyfriend. A few don't give a thought to personal or national dignity and try to ingratiate themselves with overseas Chinese businessmen or foreign travelers they don't even know, hoping to use the superiority of their youthful good looks to marry up. Some among them meet scoundrels and traitors in human flesh who use color TVs, tape recorders, and the promise, I'll take you out of the country, as bait to seduce ignorant girls. After these girls are ruined, some are discarded like a banana peel. Others are sold abroad as prostitutes and lead a wretched life far from home. A self-respecting young woman would never treat herself as a piece of merchandise, waiting for the highest bidder. Thus, young women who traded on personal appearance to gain access to the dazzling world with all its temptations, recording moral disaster. Their moral failing, as described by advice books, was vanity. Vanity led them to pay too much appearance to their too much attention to their appearance, crave the praise of men, and eventually relax their vigilance 
and fall into the clutches of tricksters. One author invoked the fable of the fox and the crow to illustrate this point. The crow had a piece of meat in its beak, which the fox coveted. The fox flattered the crow with compliments about its beautiful voice, and when the crow opened its beak to sing, the fox made off with the meat. Lest the comparison be too subtle for adolescent readers to grasp, the author added, in order to satisfy its vanity, this crow lost a piece of meat. In order to satisfy their vanity, some girls go so far as to lose their virginity, causing themselves lifelong regret. The best protection against the perils of physical attractiveness, writers of advice literature said, was to cultivate inner beauty. In a piece entitled, What is Female Beauty? A young man reacted with trepidation when he heard his family praising the good looks of his girl cousin. He urged her not to be content with her physical beauty, but to develop three characteristics even more important than a pretty face. Gentleness, steadiness, and resourcefulness. A woman should avoid crude, shrewish, obstinate, and unruly behavior. Maintain a calm and poised demeanor when she saw an attractive man, and display her natural inborn talent of resourcefulness, a female attribute described by Rousseau. These characteristics would help her protect herself, get along with others, and successfully fill the roles of wife and mother. Even if a woman was well-dressed, another piece in the same advice book warned, in modest public behavior, would cause her to seem unattractive to others. The author decried the actions of a group of schoolgirls who shouted, laughed, pushed, cracked vulgar jokes, and ate melon seeds on the trolley. In contrast, he described a relative's daughter who nodded politely when she met acquaintances, rose to welcome guests at home, and pour them tea, never interrupted in conversation, listened earnestly, and made suitable replies when others spoke. This, the author concluded, was true maidenly beauty. Although contemporary authors of advice cited Rousseau rather than Confucius, their list of desirable feminine attributes often was compatible with traditional Chinese womanly virtues. The advice they gave young women was profoundly conservative, no doubt because they perceived cherished notions of proper gender behavior as threatened by new fashions and the values suggested by them. The dismay of these advisers was certainly increased by the enthusiasm with which young women adorned themselves and their fervor in equating adornment with personal freedom. The detractors of the new trends in fashion were not much heeded by young urban Chinese. In the environment of the 1980s, the charges that women were trivialized by excessive adornment were that they stood to lose their Chinese essence if they copied foreign modes of dress, 
were dismissed as the old-fashioned mutterings of those who would limit China's contact with the rest of the world. In this context, even their critique of the commodification of female images, one that would be shared by many Western feminists, were discredited as a disguised attempt to bring back the status quo ante. Though most young urban women in the 1980s undoubtedly pursued their interest in fashion without much thought to its social significance, others regarded dressing up as a positive means of asserting their identity as individuals and as women. Nevertheless, the advent of elaborate attire and makeup did not in itself suggest much about the changing status of women. What looked like an increased scope for self-expression and individuality in women's attire may merely represent a new standard of conformity, one geared to pleasing men. As the example of numerous industrialized nations shows, female adornment and even the open display of female sexuality that the authors of advice columns feared so much are perfectly compatible with female subordination. Even if these authors lose the battle over high heels and low-cut clothes, the traditional female virtues whose demise they deplored may continue to feature prominently in the socialization of young women for some time to come.